As that, as we look at Psalm 130 and look at this psalm, it'll be one that hopefully is one that you love and uh, becomes dear to your heart. It's a short psalm, only uh, only eight verses, but I think it's packed with some very helpful information for our day today. I've titled the message "The Gospel in Psalm 130." Really, this psalm goes through the gospel, and we'll see that. And the proposition that I want you to see or the thing that I want you to take home from this is this proposition or this idea of leaving sin or leave sin and long for God's forgiveness, leave sin and long for God's forgiveness. In 1914, there was a a man that led an expedition to cross the Antarctic continent. It's a book I just recently read. And it's a book about, it's called Endurance. And the book is about a man and his crew. Uh, the man's name is Ernest Shackleton. And they left uh, Europe, they left actually England and sailed to the Antarctic. And he was wanting to be the first person to actually cross uh, Antarctica, which sounds like something terrible to do, but they decided to try to do that. And in the early 1900s, if you think about it, there's a lot of exploration going on. And as they navigate to this, one of the concerns that they have is that they would actually uh, not make it to land because the water would freeze. But they had a boat that they thought would surely make it to uh, Antarctica and then they could cross on land and on foot. And they had taken all the men, the sled dogs, everything they needed to go through this trip. This crew faced many challenges and the ship Endurance, they thought would make it, but eventually It closed in, the ice closed in around them and actually froze them in place. Ice in the sea down there by Antarctica that was so thick that they would get out and and it actually supported the ship and eventually started to crush it. But if you think about Antarctica, it's a place where opposite of our time zone when we our winter is actually their summer. But during their summer, the time actually during the June, July, August months and for about six months, there's no daylight. One of the problems that they had to endure on the endurance and on this problem or on this ship is that they were frozen in ice and couldn't go anywhere. And even to try to escape on ice to get to land would be nearly impossible because as winter set in for them, so did darkness. And they knew that in complete darkness, there is no way that they could endure the harsh conditions and get across to land with no way to see where they were going. And so they waited. And they waited for the light. Not just a morning light, but they waited for a light that would actually show up because they spent months in pitch darkness. And imagine that scene. Waiting in darkness. Waiting for the light. In Psalm 130, it's called a penitential psalm. And it's one where the psalmist, the author, expresses his guilt. He expresses remorse. And he seeks forgiveness from the Lord. It's a confession of guilt and an expression of God's goodness to forgive. And that's why I say it's the gospel in Psalm 130. It was probably written after uh, the post-exilic period there's or, or during the post-exilic, meaning Israel had been captured, taken from their land, and they're exiled. And these people are now looking and seeking for forgiveness. Daniel 9.9 says something like this, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. And the people, as they were exiled, started to realize that they had sinned against God. 
And this psalm is probably written in this time, during a similar time as to Nehemiah, as they're trying to see what God wants for them instead of constantly rejecting them. And we'll see this psalm, how important it is to rely on the forgiveness of the Lord. So let me read Psalm 130 as you follow along. Psalm 130, verse 1, says this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my, of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in His word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with Him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. In this first verse, I want to, see, I want to look and see the importance of the setting of this psalm. This psalmist, the author of this, he calls out, and is the first point I want to make, and we, we're just going to see it in these first two verses, is this importance for us to call out to the Lord and admit our need for mercy. So that first point is this, call out to the Lord and admit your need for mercy. And the setting that he has in Psalm 1, right here, the first verse, is this. He says, I, out of the depths I cry to you. And it's an alienation that he has from God. The psalmist realizes that he's in a place that's foreign or away from God. And he cries out from a pit of despair, from a place that is in the depths. And when the, when the Bible uses the word depths, oftentimes this is talking about the depths of the sea. Not just a pit, but actually the depths of the sea where water would be over, uh, over top and basically overwhelming someone where there's barely any way to cry out. If you think about this, there's actually a story or, or a, a book in the Bible that covers something very clearly like this. It's a book that probably most people will know. The book is called Jonah. Jonah ran from God. And in his sin, he waves and your billows passed over me. And that's the setting. This idea of being overwhelmed. Actually, Jonah's in the, uh, the belly of a fish. No hope. And he cries out. And he says, God, save me. He says in verse 7, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And as we know, this fish spit up Jonah, and he went on to preach to Nineveh. And I think he realized in the pit of despair, in the in these depths, in the in the ocean, in the belly of a fish, he cries out to God. And this is the setting that we cry out to God. Why did he cry out to God? Well, Jonah finally remembered. And this psalmist realizes as well, I need to cry out to God. Why? Because I need mercy. And that's what it says in verse 2. Oh, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. When you ask for mercy, you understand that there's something that wrong that you've done. In a court, if you've done a crime, you're asking for mercy. You're hoping the judge gives you a light sentence. You've realized I've committed something. And in this, we see that there's sin that's been committed. 
And there's a cry for mercy from God. If you look in verse 1, it says the word, O Lord, at the very end of it. And then it says right in verse 2, the next word, O Lord. If you notice those words, one is capitalized, all caps, and one is capital L and then small letters. He's really crying out in the first one saying, Yahweh, God of the covenant people, listen. Then he calls out again as if God didn't hear or he's making sure God hears. And he says, oh, God or Lord Adonai, the common address for the sovereign God. He's saying God of the covenant people, the sovereign God over all things, please listen to me. He says something similar to what you may say to your kids. Listen, he says in verse two, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas. Like sometimes we say to our kids or a teacher probably said this past week as they started school. Hey, kids, use your ears. Pay attention. Right. You can't listen while your mouth is moving and things like that. But that's not how the psalmist is actually talking to God. He's using the same language, but his posture and his attitude is totally different. It's not from a position of authority. It's the position of a servant going to a master begging, please listen to what I have to say, because my sin is too much and I need mercy. And we see that in verse three. We realize that he's begging for mercy. Why was he begging for mercy? Because the second point we'll see in verses three and four is that he recognized his sin is overwhelming. Only the Lord can forgive you. When your sin is overwhelming, you need to realize that only the Lord can forgive you. It says this in verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Notice the words, O Lord, and O Lord are again used. The same kind of thing, saying, God, please listen. And also, Lord, if you would count sin, who could stand? The question's very telling. There's a breath of this that's a realizing saying that any person on this earth, if they stood before God, the question is, who could stand? No one on this earth. But there's also really an individual idea. There's no way that I can stand before God because of my sin. And there's no way that we can stand before him. Says this in Psalm 143, 1 and 2, it says, Hear my prayer, O Lord, give me, uh, give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. Listen to verse 2 in Psalm 143. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. It's very similar language that we even see in Romans 3, 9 through 11. Probably verses that you may have memorized if you were in Awana or some kids program or hopefully you know well and sound familiar. It says Romans 3, 9. What then are we Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greek are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. The psalmist here in verse three understands this very well. God, if you were taking account of every person, from every place, from every time frame, from every time period on this earth, not one person could stand before you. Not one person has ever lived a life good enough to stand before God and say, I'm good enough, except for our Savior, Jesus Christ. But every other person, the best person you can think of, a coworker that may have been seem seemingly perfect, 
somebody that may be on the news or on TV or Mother Teresa or whatever it is, nobody has ever lived a life perfect enough to stand before God. And the psalmist realizes his need for mercy and cries out for mercy and admits there's no way that I could stand. And when he's looking for forgiveness and realizing that God would give it, he's in awe. Like in verse four, he says this. But with you, there is forgiveness. He realizes he can't stand and there's no hope. But this word but is there. And let me encourage or just think about it for a moment. This coordinating conjunction, but God, the same same kind of word that's used in Ephesians four, uh, two, four is here. Ephesians three, uh, two verses one through three starts to describe how wicked we are. Wicked sinners that have no hope actually following Satan. And then Ephesians 2.4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us. And it goes on to explain His great salvation. And this is the same kind of feeling that we get here in verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And that's a strange ending to that verse. You know, I understand that there's forgiveness from God and that's incredible. And why would I want forgiveness from God? Well, so that he would be loved, right? We want to love God because of his forgiveness. But actually, the psalm says, so that you may be feared. This fear is actually something that's very strange when we hear it, because we would think God's forgiveness doesn't cause me to fear. But I think it's an understanding That when we realize our place as sinners with no hope before God, there is an awe, a reverence, and a respect that we look at God and say, God, how good you are. I deserve every ounce of your wrath and judgment. I deserve nothing from you, but you give me forgiveness. Not only am I going to love you, but I'm going to fear you and realize you are my only hope. There is no plan B without God. If you don't go to the forgiveness of Christ and ask him to forgive you of your sin and trust in him for your eternal life, there is no plan B. And that should probably bring some fear and trembling to us to realize our only hope is God. It's like that bus at the end of the night when you're trying to get home and you would miss the final bus. There's no hope. Now you have to walk home. It's worse than that. When you don't trust in Christ, there is no hope, there's no plan B, there's no way to somehow earn your way to heaven. Let me ask you, does your sin bother you enough for you to beg God for mercy and forgiveness? Or do you excuse your sin and say it's not that big a deal? You know, when we understand how good God is to offer us forgiveness, we're not going to excuse our sin. When we realize how good God is, that he wants to forgive us, we're going to go to him and say, God, forgive me. I sense you. God's not saying I'm trying to hold us apart from him. He's actually wanting us to come near to him and ask for forgiveness. Think of this in Jeremiah 33, 8 and 9 says this. And this is at a time Israel was away from God. But Jeremiah says He says something about God's character that's incredible. It says about God in Jeremiah 33, 8, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. And I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, 
of praise and glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I do for them. They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. When we understand how terrible our sin is and how good God is, we will fear him and have a great desire to be forgiven and say, God, you alone can grant me the mercy that I need. That's why this psalmist cries out and says, God, for you, give me the mercy. And he's willing to wait for it, to experience that full mercy that we, even if we've been forgiven as as uh, as believers, if we've been forgiven, we still wait for that full forgiveness. We live in our earth that's broken. I don't have to tell you that. You all know it. It's a it's an earth that we deal with death and sorrow and sickness, disease, sin from other people around us, sin from in our own hearts and our own flesh. And even though I know I've been redeemed, I'm waiting and yearning for that one day when Christ will come and we will be fully forgiven and with him and sin will be no more, no more tears. And we look for that and we wait for it. We long for it. We wait for his forgiveness and we trust his faithfulness because God has said it will happen in verse five. Look at this. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my sword more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. This language and the expression is an expectation of what God will do. Remember, at the beginning of this psalm. He said he was in the depths, in deep despair, like Jonah in the pit of that or the belly of that well in the sea with no hope. And he's crying out, God, forgive me, give me mercy. And we understand we can ask God for forgiveness and he will give it at any time. But as I say, we look forward to the day that we see full forgiveness and we stand with Christ in his presence, freedom from sin and from all other things. That will be a wonderful day. There's an understanding that God forgives, but sometimes it takes time for us to for us to see the forgiveness in our life and to see it around us and even for us to see it fully. But we wait for it like this watchman did for the city. And he says it twice in verse six there. He says, as the watchman waits, as the watchman waits, this watchman is probably a person that actually guards the city. Uh, but back then during this time, they would they would be either on the city walls and there would be sentries posted or people there watching or they'd be at the gate looking out outside of the city. And they would probably have these people during the daytime as well. But during the night, it's a critical time and their hope, their hope for safety and security is the next sunrise, because when you are back in this time, and you're a watchman and you're looking out over that city or looking out beyond that city and looking into the darkness and the forest or the, the wilderness beyond. There's no street lights. There's no solar lights out there to light up. There's nothing to see but darkness. And the fear starts to overwhelm you because you don't know what's coming. You don't know what's out there. But they had these watchmen looking, guarding the city. And when that first morning light breaks, there's hope. They can see now that when we see that we can feel the presence or the understanding of, hey, there's people around us. We know we're safe and there's nothing out there to fear. 
It's probably you've been in a situation where you've been in a very dark place, a cave possibly if you went into the caverns and they turned the lights off. Or possibly as I was lost in the woods when I was hunting one time and the only thing that you have hope in is that headlight that has batteries and you're hoping, please don't go out. Fortunately, after a couple hours, I found my way back to my car and was able to get out of there. But after that battery goes out, your only hope, if you don't have a fire, is that next sunrise. And that's how much this person, this psalmist, is longing for forgiveness. I'm looking for God's forgiveness because he's the only one that can give it. And it's like the new morning that arises. And how do I know it's coming? It's not just a hopeless Oh, not just a hopeless, vain expectation of maybe somebody shows up when you call a friend and they say, maybe I'll come and you know they won't. No, this is a hope that's founded on something. In verse five, it says, I waited. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and I hope. And in his word, I hope the foundation is in his word. The foundation is on God and his character. The hope that we have is based on solid foundation from God's word that he will forgive those who says he those who who said uh, or asked for his forgiveness. You know, it's not like the hope that we say here in South Texas and we look at the gray skies and we say, I hope it rains. And as we probably realize oftentimes and you notice the brown grass out there, it did rain some this week, but not enough. Right. And we look for those gray clouds and we say, I hope it rains and we're not sure if it will. Or you're like that student that maybe this week had your first test and you say, I hope I make a good grade, but you know you didn't pay attention in class and you didn't study, so it's kind of a baseless hope. No foundation to actually make a good grade. No, this hope, this hope is based on God. It's on His Word, His promises. The promises that He never fails to keep. He never ever breaks His promises. I've broken promises to my kids. We're going to go to Dairy Queen. Something comes up and you can't go to Dairy Queen. Dad, you promised. Sorry. We've broken promises before. God never breaks his promises. And he says he will forgive. And it's on his word that we hope. And so we look for that forgiveness. And as we finish, we know that the Lord will provide redemption. The last point we see here in verse 7 and 8. There's a confidence we have. We know that the Lord will provide redemption. Our loving Lord will provide redemption. Says this in verse seven. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. Again, he says that hope for the Lord. There is with with the Lord. There is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So what do we do? We trust this Lord. And what do we do? We hope on God, just like Israel did as they're in the exile, hoping for God to redeem them and forgive them. We also hope and have confidence in God that his steadfast love with his steadfast love, he will provide redemption. This us, that's God's love for us. And when he loves us that much, he wants to forgive a plentiful. It's like a storehouse that's going to be open Full of grace from God, He has redeemed me and forgiven me. And you know what? He has enough redemption. His mercy, mercy is not, has not been exhausted. It's never run out. God's redemption is enough. He has enough for you. He's plentiful. And man, Israel, as they're hearing this and 
just like we sang Psalm 130. Psalm 130, they may have been singing, All these Israel bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That he was the one, Jesus, that gave his life as a redeemer. It says Titus 2.14, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ redeems us. And he doesn't just redeem us for nothing. He redeems us for his self, for his people, so we can be zealous for good works. And why? In Colossians 1, 13 and 14, the same idea of darkness and have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This psalm is really an Old Testament gospel story. We see that we're sinners. We cry out for mercy, knowing no one can forgive us except for God because our sin is too great. And we hope and trust that he will forgive us and he will. He provides redemption. Believers, if you're here today and you're struggling with sin that has been besetting you, sin that's been overwhelming you, something that you've constant pit of despair, realizing you may be going through a trial, constantly falling on your face in sin. We have a God that has plentiful redemption. He has mercy. That is, hey God, forgive, forgive me. As I wait for you, I will trust in you. I know you will forgive me. And we look forward to that day that it's no longer here. And if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never followed Him, trust Him today. Ask. I mentioned Ernest Shackleton and his crew of 28 men on the endurance. They were stuck in the ice for, for months and months in the darkness. Literally waiting for the sunrise, but not just the sunrise of the morning, the sunrise of the Antarctic where there's no hope and no light for months. Can you picture the first sunrise that they saw? Can you imagine sunrise four to five months after they've been waiting, finally realizing they could get on their journey? And incredibly, all 28 of those men were saved. We wait for that day of redemption. We wait for that day that one day all of us, all the redeemed, will stand before the King and say, worthy is the Lamb because He shed His blood for us. Would you today trust Christ and follow Him? The God of the Old Testament that redeemed and forgave Israel is the same God of the New Testament. He gave us Jesus the Redeemer so that forgiveness of sins. Let me encourage you, leave sin and long for God's forgiveness.